Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. If you missed this service, we hope to see you this Sunday at either 8.45 a.m. for our praise and worship service or 11 a.m. for our traditional service. Now, here's this week's message. When I was, uh, well, how about this? Anybody ever been to Disney World? A couple of us, okay. So when I was younger, I, re- I remember going to Disney World. Truth be told, I remember two things. I remember being too scared to ride Space Mountain. And I remember that my Mickey Mouse ice cream dropped. How devastating when Mickey Mouse ice cream drops, yes? Well, for some of us, okay. But it's one of those things that I thought we were supposed to take our kids to. I have three kids, and you know, it's the magical place. It's the most wonderful place. It's where dreams come true. And so Jessica and I, we decided with the help of her parents to take the kids to Disney World. And now that's four against three. And we were like, well, this time the odds are going to be in our favor. We have more than one adult per children. This is going to be amazing. It's going to be life-changing. I have to admit, as an adult, it wasn't very magical at all. It was 236 degrees. The lines were ridiculously long. It was a 90-minute wait to see Mickey. They don't even walk around the park anymore. And needless to see my kids and not see Mickey Mouse that day. The food was so expensive, and it just wasn't very magical. And it's just a common thing, and you already know this to be true, is that when you get older, your perspective changes, doesn't it? What you thought was true when you were younger, when you get older, it just doesn't always line up. And, and this maybe even goes for your faith, that as you get older, sometimes the things you thought were true, or maybe your beliefs get challenged, or maybe just what you were taught as a child, as, as a child when you get older just doesn't seem to register anymore. And you see, when you have questions, people may have said, hey, well, it's in the Bible, so I believe it. Well, that was probably never a good answer. As an adult, that answer doesn't really work, does it? Unless you have some foundational truths, unless you have, well, what we'd say, unless you believe the Bible's authoritative in your life. And today we're simply going to have an adult conversation about the Bible. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about maybe some some truths that we believe as Christians or that many Christians believe, and I hope you can kind of grab hold of these things today. And, and if you do, well, I believe it's going to change the way you use your Bible, the way you view your Bible. And, and hopefully, hopefully you'll get into it a little bit more. So the key belief we're going to look at today is this. I believe the Bible is the word of God and has the right to command my belief and action. And today is going to be very different than normal. It's very teaching oriented. I mean, very different. So if it's your first time here, this may be the most boring sermon you've ever heard before in your life. That's, that's not a good way to set up a sermon at all, is it? Come back next week, it'll be better. But today's going to be detail-oriented, we're going to be pretty theological, and we're going to go over some things that are very important to talk about. And for up front, I want you to know that a lot of my research and a lot of my efforts, the things that we're going to talk about is based on this book. It's called Christian Theology by Millard Erickson. It's my, t- my t- go-to uh, for theology, and if you want a theology book, that's my favorite anyways, and just want to recommend that and let you know that this morning. But so today, my goal is simply 
My goal is simply to talk about the foundational truths about the scriptures because we talk about them all the time, we quote from them all the time, and if we don't understand what we're going to talk about today, when we quote from it, it really isn't going to mean much to you. So the verse we're going to kind of stick on is 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. It says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we're just going to unpack two statements here for the majority of our time. Uh, The first one we're going to unpack is this idea of all Scripture. We may take for granted that we know what that means, but when we see that word all Scripture or the Scriptures as non-Catholics, as Protestants, we're referring to the collection of the 66 books, we believe in 66 books, found in, well, the Bible, God's Word, or the Holy Scriptures. And, and in this book, there are all sorts of different types of literature. One scholar says, there's narrative history, genealogies, chronicles, laws of all kinds, poetry of all kinds, proverbs, prophetic oracles, riddles, dramas, parables, letters, biographies, sermons, and apocalypses. In the Bibles, the scripture was originally written in three different languages. The Old Testament, mainly uh, Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. And then we, the New Testament is all from Greek. I'm sure you probably knew this, but there's one thing that we probably all know. The Bible is mainly divided into two sections, right? Two big sections. What are they called? Old Testament, New Testament, right. Now, here's one thing you may not have known. Maybe you did. That word testament is a translation into English from Latin. The word testament actually means covenant. And they chose to keep the Latin translation from what? Yeah, Greek to Greek to Latin instead of English to from Greek to English. And so we kind of get confused. But when you see that word testament, it can mean new covenant or old covenant. See, testament we don't use much. Usually like a testament of will. That's not what this is. And so when you're reading the scriptures, if you get that little point, you'll realize that the Old Testament or the Old Covenant revolves around what? Well, the Old Covenant. And the New Testament or the New Covenant is, revolves around what? The, you're right, Christ, the New Covenant made by Him. The, those two things can radically change how you view the scriptures. But the word testament is interchangeable with the word covenant. And so it's divided in what could be called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, the Old Testament has 30, now we're going to go with the Old Testament because that's what we're used to. It has how many books? All right, 39. I don't know if I said the answer before you did, but 39. We have the first five books of the Torah, which really lays the foundation of, of, of everything else that's to come. It talks about the creative order and really lays the foundation of the Old Covenant. And then we have the historical books, which are the history of the Jewish people and their interactions with what? The covenant, the old covenant, right? How it works and their interactions with God. Then we have the poetic books, which are the human elements and the humans talking and, and discussing the relationship with God. All that revolves around this covenant that God made with his people. And then we have the prophets, which follow the lives of the prophets and their writings and speeches to the people of the covenant. So the Old Testament all revolves around that covenant. Remember, if you were here with the story, we talked about um, Moses. Remember Abraham? God put a covenant with Abraham, and then we have Moses. You're like, oh, that's why you talked about the story? Yeah. So we could all now just talk about these familiar concepts. 
That this idea of covenant, if I say you should be like, oh, there was a whole bunch of them. That's right. And that's what it revolves around in the Old Testament. You had the moment with David, Abraham, but it's all based on that. Okay, so this idea of old covenant. And what's really fascinating is those 39 books, did you know it's the same books Jesus would have read? The Psalms are the songs that Jesus would have sung. I told you the most spiritually healthy people I've ever met read Psalms every day. And, and if you just think that Jesus would have sung those as he walked on the road, I mean, it's amazing what we have here. And, and look what the Apostle Peter says about this. 2 Peter 1.20 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter, right, who was one of the, uh, Christ's closest followers when he's writing down, talking about the scriptures and prophecy, he says, this is from God. I mean, I just want you to see the importance they thought of it. In fact, I saw one stat, and I don't know how true it is, I couldn't go back and count, said that the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament 855 times. If that's not exact, we just know it's a lot, meaning I want you to understand they took it very serious. And so when they were putting this all together, they have the Old Testament, and they also have the New Testament, right? We talked about this, I'm repeating myself, that revolves around the New Covenant and what we call the Christian Scriptures. The Old Testament is sometimes referred to as the Hebrew Scriptures because Jewish people still use them to this day. And as followers of Jesus, we use those, but we also use what's called the New Testament, the writings of the early church. People will talk about that in a second. But there's 27 books in the New Testament written by various authors. And you and I both know that the scriptures didn't fall out of the sky, wrapped in a bow with a little tag that said, Holy Scriptures from God, right? You say, maybe they did. I don't know, Brian. I'm glad I'm here today, right? They, they didn't. And so when they were putting together the New Testament, there were certain criteria, certain things that would make that these letters or these writings or these um, biographies would, would fit into what we call the canon, the New Testament canon. And again, in, in your notes, it's spelled wrong. It's only one N, by the way. But here's the canon criteria. First, all writings have to have an apostolic connection, meaning all the books in the New Testament were either written by one of the 12 apostles or a close connection with them or Jesus. And the reason why that's important because it speaks to the accuracy and the antiquity of the works. And number two, it had to have shared orthodoxy, meaning it was considered to be in line with the core beliefs taught by the apostles and in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. Because there's a lot of false teachings going on out there, and so they had to kind of had this, this rule of what would come in and what wouldn't. And then number three, it had to have widespread acceptance, meaning the books uh, were preserved if they proved useful for a large number of churches. And so when they were collecting these writers like Peter and Paul, and, and they were going through, here's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say about it, there were certain criteria for a book to make it in the New Testament canon. They were different lists all from the very beginning. Different people had different books, and when they brought them together, there had to be this rule. And that's what they used to use it. And what I want you to understand is it didn't just kind of haphazardly fall together. There was a lot of thought, effort, and prayer. And this was very, very early on. They started pulling this together. But look at what Peter says. I want to show you a couple things that, that these writers wrote so you can understand how important they thought what they were writing was. 
So 2 Peter 3.15, Peter says this. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Real quick, you ever thought the Bible was hard to understand? Yeah, Peter's like, yeah, that guy Paul, none of us understand him. It's really hard. If it's hard on Peter, I mean, if it's hard on Peter to understand, just, you know, have some grace for you. But he says, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. You see where he says, as they do other scriptures, other scriptures, Paul is, excuse me, Peter is equating Paul's writings with scriptures, the same level as scriptures. One scholar says that word other refers to other of the same kind, meaning there is no wiggle room, there is no debate, there is no getting around it. Peter is here calling Paul's works scriptures. They knew what was happening was important. Look at what John says, 1 John 4, 6. He says, we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. It's pretty clear, isn't it? He's writing a letter. We are from God. And those who are from God listen to us because we're from them. And if they're not, they don't listen to us, they're not from God. Pretty bold statement, but it's very clear. They knew they were writing something of importance. Look what he says in Revelation 22. He says, I warn everyone who hears the the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. If you've never read Revelation, it's not good, by the way. If anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the life, tree of life, and in the holy city which is described in this scroll. Another bold excuse me, another bold statement. They knew God was working through them. They knew they were speaking on behalf of God. And so we see that all Scripture, when we hear that, we're talking about the Old Testament writers, but we're also talking about the New Testament writers. As the first covenant, God spoke through his people and wrote down things in the Old Testament had to do with the first covenant. We see the same thing with the new covenant that God chose to work through and speak through the apostles and and those guys to give us his written word. And so that's the first one is all scriptures, that idea, New Testament, Old Testament. But second, we see all scripture is what? God breathed, that's right. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, this idea of God breathed, another term we use is called inspired. Anybody heard of that? Now, it's not saying that God's word is inspirational, meaning, you know, like that little inspirational book you read while you have your coffee break on the back porch. It's not saying it's inspirational, like it'll just make you feel good. It's saying it's inspired. God breathed. One scholar says the idea the term presents is that God has breathed his character into scripture so that it's inherently inspired. The scriptures owe their origin and distinctiveness to God himself. And this is the abiding character of scripture. And so the New Testament and the Old Testament, the authors weren't just writing helpful information like here's 10 steps to live a better life or here's 10 command to be rich or here's seven things. They were writing on behalf of God. God was working through them. The Spirit was working through them and they were writing for all Christians to live this life 
for God and how to properly relate to him. Millard Erickson says, By inspiration of Scripture, we mean that the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on Scripture's writer, which render their writings an accurate record of the revelation, which resulted in what they wrote actually being the Word of God. This is what Christians believe. We believe the Bible is inspired, and we believe it was revealed to us by God, a revelation from God, His characters in there, His written Word for us. We all understand it. It's inspired. We've heard that before. Head nods would be good. We're like, yes, it's good. I'm, I'm glad this is a review. So it's inspired, but then you may say, okay, Brian, what does it mean to be inspired? Like how, how much was it inspired? Now this is where we're going to get up in the details. Some of us, you're about to gloss over. It's okay. All right? We are going to talk about it to understand some things before we get to the last part this morning. But here are the different theories. Here's three theories we're talking about this morning about three common evangelical theories of inspiration. And what this gets into is, well, we know God inspired it, but how much did he inspire or how did he inspire? All right, so first up, we have the dynamic theory. I'm going to read the quote. You can follow along in your notes. It says, the dynamic theory emphasizes the combination of the divine and human elements in the process of inspiration in writing the Bible. The Spirit of God works by directing the writer to the thoughts or concepts and allowing the writer's own distinctive personality to come into play in choice of words and expressions. Thus, the writer will give expression to the divinely directed thoughts in a way unique, uniquely characteristic of that person. And, and what this says is, okay, you have the writer and you have God. If, if me and me and the Apostle Paul were sitting here, God could guide our thoughts in the same way, but the way I say it and the way Paul's going to say it is different because of our personalities. Meaning they're both inspired, but gives a little bit more liberty to the, uh, the characteristics and the personality of the, the author, but still believes it's inspired by God. Then we have the verbal theory. The verbal theory insists that the Holy Spirit's influence extends beyond the direction of thoughts to the selection of words used to convey the message. The work of the Holy Spirit is so intense that each word is the exact word God wants to use at the point to express the message. Ordinarily, great care is taken to insist that this is not dictation, however. And so the verbal theory believes that we have both human, you have the human element, you have the God element, but it extends greater than the dynamic that they're both kind of in interplay just a little bit more, but not as much as the next one, which is the dictation theory. The dictation theory is the teaching that God actually dictated the Bible to the writers. Passages where the Spirit is um, depicted as telling the author precisely what to write as regarded as applying to the entire Bible. Different authors did not write in distinctive styles. Basically, the human author was a basically a typewriter for God. God said everything exactly with every comma and every period. You know, you get the point. How he wanted it. Now what we have to understand about these are all three of these theories have their strengths and weaknesses. It can be super fun to talk about and it can be super fun to disagree about. For instance, myself and Phil, we disagree and I've been trying to learn him some good theology around here, okay? He's still here in the service too. I picked on the last one. Now so me and me and Phil, we disagree about this and we have fun. Y'all like that has to be the most boring conversation to talk about ever. It may be to you, but we have fun with it. But we're both playing inside the framework that this is an inspired word of God. 
We don't leave that framework. If we were to leave that framework, it wouldn't be a, probably such a fun conversation anymore. And so you can disagree about how it works because at the end of the day, they're called theories for a reason. But it's not a theory that God inspired it. That's doctrine. That's, that's what we definitely hold to. So in Christian circles, we can say, well, I don't, I don't believe it works like this. I think it works like that. And that is okay. What, again, what's, up, what's not up for debate in the Christian faith is if it's inspired word of God. And so if the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, are the inspired word of God, if they are God-breathed, well, that means they're dependable and reliable. Would we agree? Do you understand the connection? If, if God was the source of it, then the Bible would be dependable and reliable Well, because God, of course, is dependable and reliable. And so there's this word theologians use as a shorthand to talk about the dependability and the reliability of Scripture. And perhaps this word has caused more confusion in the local church than any other theological concept. But because we're adults, I believe we can have a grown-up conversation about it. And because the Bible is God's word, the correlation to that is the Bible is what's called an errant, meaning without error and truthful. And again, inerrancy is speaking to the dependability and the reliability of the Bible. Millard Erickson says this. He says, inerrancy is the doctrine that the Bible is fully truthful in all of its teachings. Inerrancy is corollary, corollary to the full inspiration of the Bible. While detailed scientific descriptions or mathematical, mathematically exact statements are not possible, inerrancy means that the Bible, when judged by the usage of its time, teaches the truth without any affirmation of error. Now, the reason I believe that this topic has caused more division within the local church, meaning Christians, is because people forget why they're even talking about it. The reasons why theologians or pastors or teachers talk about inerrancy, we're not talking about inerrancy just to talk about inerrancy as if there's nothing else to talk about. The whole doctrine of inerrancy and the reason why it's important is because we're trying to communicate the dependability and the reliability of scriptures. That's the point, that the scriptures are dependable and the reliability, because it says some important things about salvation. How do I know I can trust it? That's why these things come into play. When people forget that like inerrancy's point is to talk about the dependability and reliability, people start saying really crazy things to each other. Like, if you don't believe my view of inerrancy, then you're not even saved. Or if you believe that about inerrancy, you're not educated and you're simple-minded. My point is that as Christians, we cut each other down, brothers and sisters in Christ. We should never do that. And what I have learned as a pastor, who, if I'm honest, is quite frankly embarrassed by previous generations' just divisions in the church. I'm embarrassed by the history of, of how people have complained and fought in the local church. When people start talking about this, I say, do you believe God's word is dependable and reliable? And they say, well, of course I do. And I'm like, well, we're good. Because the word inerrancy is to communicate the dependability and the reliability of God's word. Now, with that, we're going to talk about different concepts of inerrancy. Who is just excited this morning? Two people. That's all right. More than I thought. We're good. Now, here's another quote for you. It says, the term inerrancy means different things to different people. Like, that's not true. No, it absolutely is true. This is why most people argue. 
The term inerrancy means different things to different people who contend over which position properly deserves to be called by that name. It is therefore important to summarize briefly the current positions on the matter of inerrancy. See, it's just like your marriage, at least my marriage, me and my wife can say the same word, but we mean very different things when we say those words. You ever had that happen to you? Anybody? Yeah, a couple of us. All right, good. You're on the same page. So when we, this, this term inerrancy is loaded and can bring so many emotions. So let's look at a couple of them this morning. We, first, we have absolute inerrancy. It says absolute inerrancy holds that the Bible, which includes rather detailed treatment of matters both scientific and historical, is fully true. The impression is conveyed that the Bible writers intend to give considerable amount of exact scientific and historical data. And he does make a note, I didn't put this in here, that this is the, like the least held view out of all the inerrancies. But this one believes that for all science matters and all historical matters, they are exactly true and correct and they do all sorts of things to work through that. Number two, we have full inerrancy. It says, full inerrancy holds that the Bible is completely true. While the Bible does not primarily aim to give scientific and historical data, such scientific and historical assertions as it does make are fully true. There is no essential difference between the position of absolute inerrancy in terms of their view of the religious, theological, and spiritual message. The understanding of scientific and historical reference is quite different, however. Full inerrancy regards these references as a phenomenal. That is, they are reported they are, uh, the way they appear to the human eye. They are not necessarily exact. Rather, they are popular descriptions involving general references or approximation. Yet, they are correct. What they teach is essentially correct in the way they teach it. When you see a number in the Bible that says it was exactly 600, and you're like, well, was it really 600? That's the way it appeared to the human eye. That's what they're reporting, and they're moving on. So we don't need to debate whether or not 601 or 603, or was it 554? 600 is a general number. They're saying it's still accurate, and it's still true, because that's the way they intended to teach it, but being exact was never the point anyways. And then we have limited inerrancy. Limited inerrancy also regards the Bible as inerrant and infallible in its salvific, say that word a lot, salvific doctrinal references. A sharp distinction is drawn, however, between non-empirical relevant uh, revealed matters on the one hand and empirical natural references on the other. The Bible's scientific and historical references reflect the understanding of the current time it was written. The Bible writers were subject to the limitations of their time. Revelation and inspiration did not raise the writers above ordinary knowledge. God did not reveal science or history to them. Consequently, the Bible may well contain what we would term errors in these areas. This, however, is of no great consequence since the Bible does not, excuse me, does not purport to teach science and history. For the purposes for which the Bible was given, it is fully truth and inerrant. Meaning, science, when they talk about how big a circle is or how it rains, they were never trying to be inerrant in those areas. That's the way they viewed it, so they wrote it down. And they could be wrong for our modern understanding, but it doesn't take away that they believe it's inerrant for salvation and doctrine and, and things of that nature. You say, well, Brian, I don't think that's inerrant. But what I'm here to tell you is a theologian 
is communicating to us, who has researched and studied this, people would still, that's still in the reign, it's called limited inerrancy. They still believe the Bible's important. They still believe it's inspired by God and everything like that. And then we have what's called inerrancy of purpose. Inerrancy of purpose holds that the Bible inerrantly accomplishes its purpose. The purpose of the biblical revelation is to bring people in a personal fellowship with Christ, not to communicate truths. It accomplishes this purpose effectively. It is improper, however, to relate inerrancy with, its, with factuality. Thus, factual inerrancy is an inappropriate term. Truth is thought of not as quali- quality of propositions, but as a means to accomplish an end. Implicit in this position is a pragmatic view of truth. Now, here's my point. Obviously, all four of these are different and <laughs> There's nuances. There's little things that make them very different. But all of them hold to this doctrine of inerrancy. All of them hold to believe that the scriptures are important and esteem them very high. They all believe it's dependable and reliable. They believe it's fully trustworthy when it comes to salvation, doctrinal issues, ethical issues, church life issues. My point is inerrancy isn't a bad word. It isn't a scary word. And me, as a pastor, I apologize on behalf of all pastors if it's ever used as a means of your salvation. Someone said, well, if you don't believe in inerrancy, you're not saved. I apologize that someone said that. Or if someone has ever talked about this term without grace. Because what we're trying to communicate with this idea of inerrancy is that the Bible is dependable and reliable. With that. Say, okay, Brian, I get you. The Bible is dependable. The Bible is reliable because it's inspired by God. I I get that. But what about, what about those seeming discrepancies? What about those things like there's an account in this book, and this book, I don't really know where it is, but someone told me or I Googled it and I saw it. What about that account of this and this, how those numbers don't add up? What about those seeming, those discrepancies? It's fully true, Brian. What do you do with those? Did you know there were theories on what to do with those too? Guess what you're about to learn about? Those theories. And if nothing else, you can leave here going, man, that whole Bible thing, that's a lot more complicated than I thought. I know, isn't it? So before you argue with somebody, make sure you take the time to learn what you're talking about. Because it can get complicated when we get into these details. So what do you do with the seeming discrepancies? We're going to go over a couple. First, it's called the abstract approach. Look at that. Abstract approach. The abstract approach of B.B. Warfield tends to focus primarily on the doctrinal considerations of Scripture's inspiration. While he was aware of the problems and offered resolutions for some of them, he tended to feel that they did not all have to be explained. They are merely difficulties. The weight of evidence for inspiration and consequent inerrancy of the Bible were so great that no amount of data of this type can overthrow it. Basically, we know there are difficulties... Let's move on and talk about something different. We know that's a little hard, but let's talk about salvation and doctrine. And just because we can't explain it, just because we don't have the effort, let's, we acknowledge it. Let's just kind of move on. Number two, we have the harmonistic approach. Some people get really excited about this one. The harmonistic approach is represented by Edward Young's Thy Word is Truth, as well as Lewis Gasson's Inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Once again, belief of inerrancy of the Bible is based on the doctrinal teaching of inspiration. Advocates of this approach assert the difficulties presented by various phenomena can be resolved, and they attempt to do so using currently current available information. 
Now these, some of you love reading these books where it really tries to defend and secure and lock everything up to be airtight. And people who hold to this say there are no discrepancies. Everything can be resolved and they tend to do so. Now for me, I read some of these things and some are like, man, that makes a lot of sense. And some of them, maybe you've read it, you go, ah, I think you're stretching a little bit, buddy. I mean, I appreciate the effort. Mm, not so sure that works. And then we have, but the reason why they're doing it is because they hold to this view. B.B. Warfare be like, eh, difficulty, I don't know, let's move on. But the people who hold to this believe they can all be explained, so they try. I mean, great, A for effort. Number three is moderate harmonization approach. It says the approach of moderate harmonization follows the style of the harmonistic approach to a certain extent. The problems are taken serious, and an effort is made to solve them or relieve the difficulties as far as this is reasonably possible with the data currently available. But they will not force premature resolutions to the problem. And the idea is this. In the Old Testament, some of these books were written, I don't know, 4,000 years ago? Anybody have any information stored in their shed from 4,000 years ago? Oh, one person, how? Okay, all right, but everybody else. But the point is, some, some, they go, yeah, we're going to try to resolve some of these problems. And they believe that if we had all information, there wouldn't be any problems. But they also realize that it's, you know, for some of this stuff, it's been a couple thousand years. Maybe we don't have all the data we need. So they do their best, but they don't go too far to where the argument kind of looks, come on, man, that's stretching it a bit. So they kind of limit themselves. And so there are other views as well. I mean, plenty more. But, but I, what I want you to see is that people, theologians, and why we study this is because people investigate, dig deep, think through all the logical concerns about each position. And when we're talking about theology, no system is perfect. Theology is not inerrant. Every theological system has errors because it's developed by us and really brilliant people. But all of them are trying their best to bring God's word alive and create ways for us to understand it just a little bit deeper. And, and if nothing else, you can appreciate what they do. Now, we talked about two things so far. We talked about all scriptures, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, are inspired by God or God breathed. And then he says this, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good works. In other words, Paul is telling us the scriptures have authority over our lives. Anything that teaches you, corrects you, trains you, or rebukes you, it's claiming an authoritative position over you. And why? You say, why? Well, the authority of the scriptures. But remember, that's why we just spent 30 minutes talking about that other stuff. Because we believe they're divinely given to us from God. And if God is speaking to us, then we understand why they're important. And so teaching is that the source of Christian doctrine comes from the Bible. This is how we know what to believe about God. And, and doctrine just simply means our beliefs, our, our theological beliefs, what we believe about God and how God relates to us. And rebuking. The Bible can rebuke us. I mean, it rebukes false teachings. All of us have bad worldviews. We think things, and the Bible corrects us. How many of us have ever been rebuked by the Bible? If you've ever read the Bible, you've been rebuked by it because it likes to rebuke you. And it's okay. You're not the only one. All of us get rebuked. 
And it corrects us. And this is seen as a positive statement, meaning I think, you know what? If I pray to God, he needs to make me, you know, have about $7 billion in my account. So I pray like that. Then I read my scriptures and it corrects me that God is not my magic genie who's there at my becking wish to give me a billion dollars. So it corrects my understanding. That's why we read it. And it trains us for righteousness. And the idea is that the scriptures, through all of that, the scriptures will teach us how to live a holy life. A life that is pleasing and honoring to God. He tells us why. He says, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible was given so we can be equipped to do the good work. So we could reflect God's goodness and glory into the world. The, the Excuse me. The scriptures were never given to us to be a science textbook. The scriptures were never given to us to be some mathematical textbook. The scriptures were given to us from God so he could reveal truths to us. We use them wrong. People use them wrong. While they are power and alive, we've got to use them for why God has given them to us. So, as Bill Mount says, he says, Paul is encouraging Timothy to center his ministry on the scripture because it comes from God and will fully equip him for service. Why will it equip us for service? Because all scripture, all 66 books, are inspired by God. Which then we believe that if it's inspired by God, it's dependable and reliable to train us, to rebuke us, to correct us, shape us to live a life that's honoring to him so we can go out and be the people he's asked us to be. When it comes to the scriptures, this is what Christians believe. This is what the church has believed for a very long time. And I would venture to guess that the reason why many people have a hard time reading it or studying it is because we don't really believe it's inspired by God. Because if you really believed that God spoke to you through this, if you really believe that God has taken the time to intervene in time and history and to, to, to speak through these authors and preserve these documents for us, then we would never look to Oprah or Facebook or Twitter or seven best practices for advice. We would go where? To a divinely inspired book. And, and again, self-help books are fine. Read them all day long. But don't neglect God's word. And so we talked about all of that, and it was a little dry this morning, because I want you to really evaluate, do you believe that God has inspired this? If so, get into it. Read it. See what he has to say. I mean, what would your life look like if you believed that? What would your life look like if you pretended to believe it? If you're like, you know what, Brian, I'm not sure about how the Bible works. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I'll pretend it's inspired by God, and I'm going to read it as if it was. Go ahead and pretend if it gets you in there. Start there. But as for the Christian faith, what we believe is that this is the inspired word of God. And I understand, as an individual, you may have trouble, you may struggle, you may not be able to wrap around how all this works. That's okay. If you investigate, there really are great answers out there. People who've worked through all of these things. And I'm not asking you to believe this as a child because we said so. I'm telling you because this has radically changed my life. 
And I believe it'll change your life. I believe it'll change your marriage, the way you work, the way you relate to people, the way you handle finances. It'll change your relationship with God, I believe, because I've seen what it's done in my own life. Imagine what it may be able to do for yours. And as a church, collectively, this is one thing we cannot back down from. The scriptures, as Paul says, should teach us, correct us, rebuke us, and train us. And when we find ourselves as the people of God going a direction and it's contrary to what the scriptures say, we adjust to what the scriptures say. As a church, we do not back down from standing on God's word. You say, well, Brian, I'm not sure. No, no, we've already talked about it. Because we believe it's inspired by God. You see how everything's then connected? Meaning at the end of the day, if you don't carry it out, you're saying that either, one, you're not listening to God or you don't believe it's from God. The reason why we took all that time is to build the case that the reason why people take it so serious, and I hope you do, is because we really believe God has given it to us. And if you believe that, it changes everything. We must be unapologetically committed to God's word. And my prayer for you this week is that as you get into it, even if it's just tomorrow, you're excited, like, I'm going to read the Bible tomorrow. I am good with that. Start tomorrow. And my goal and my hope and my prayer is that God, not my goal, but my prayer, that God would reveal himself to you in a mighty way this week. And that you will realize that getting into the scriptures really can change your life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we thank you so much for, thank you so much for you. We thank you so much for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, restored the fellowship with you. Father, we thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself through your written word. And Father, we don't understand it all and we struggle trying to understand how it works, but Father, we just pray that your spirit illuminates our hearts and our minds. Father, and I pray that each and every one of us take it serious this week. And we dig into it a little bit. And we realize that people, very smart people, have thought this stuff through. And then if we have questions, they're really, really hard, good answers. Father, I pray that you just bless our time in the word this week. Help us realize that we can go to it for all of life's many difficult questions. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.